0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to From Splendor to Agency, Critical Race
1: Theory, The Progressive War on Truth, and Overcoming Victimhood. Please welcome Jonathan Butcher, the Heritage Foundation's Will Skillman Fellow in Education.
2: Thank you everyone and good afternoon to all of you joining us online and those of us uh, those of you here with us today. It's a pleasure to see everyone. My mom called me the other day and said I saw this letter to the editor in the paper. Can you help me understand it and explain what's going on? And this letter to the editor had words like interest convergence, intersectionality, names of academics from 40 years ago in it. And she wanted me to to help her. And I said, Mom, have I got a book for you. (laughs) But it wasn't just for the most important audience, who is my mom. It was also for the high school students who I spoke to earlier today, one of whom listened to me talk and describe how America's founding ideals of freedom and opportunity are what make us uniquely American and what create an identity for us. And at the end of my remarks, he asked me a question and said, you know, you're just quoting Martin Luther King here, and, and you know we've heard that over and over again. You don't need to, to tell us that. And I said, no, wait a minute. I thought about what I talked about, and I said, no, I I didn't quote Martin Luther King. And he said, yeah, yeah, you did. And it didn't dawn on me until the ride back here that I realized that I had said, you know, the founding ideals in our Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't know if he knew that that was in our founding documents. That's what this book is for. And then finally... The book is for this mom who I spoke with a year ago. Her name is Scarlett Johnson. And when I talked to her, she described her small town of McQuan thienesville in Wisconsin as quiet, friendly, nice. Then she told me that she was very troubled at what was happening in her child's school because everything was being viewed through the lens of race. And she wanted to do something about it. Not only did she tell me her story, which is included in my book, but she helped to start a campaign to change who was on the school board because she wanted to make a change. She needed to know what was in critical race theory, where this came from, these ideas that are dividing America's Americans from all parts of the political, economic, and social spectrum. She said it was exhausting and frustrating. And just months after I talked to this mom from a small town in Wisconsin, As those of you who are watching online can see, she wound up being profiled by the New York Times as an example of what the mainstream media, anyway, was saying was a movement to divide America. When what Scarlett would say and would tell of you is that she was reacting to an effort to take these ideas that are, in fact, racially discriminatory at their core in critical race theory and divide people. So that's who this book is for. That's who the audience is. The goal is to help open minds and to help parents and school board members, Americans all over the US, to understand how to interpret critical race theory, what it looks like in practice. And so that's why we're here. So the first person I'm going to introduce before I sit down and talk to our uh, distinguished Uh, guest who's joining me today um, is another distinguished guest and that is my colleague here at the Heritage Foundation, Mike Gonzalez. He is an accomplished author in his own right, having written books um, about uh, both identity politics, the plot to change America, as well as Black Lives Matter. And so Mike's going to help to situate us in this moment in time. He's going to help to place us for where we are and what's going on. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Mike Gonzalez.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm not going to make a joke about anybody, because nobody's ever going to make a joke about anyone from a podium ever again. (laughs) Uh, You guys are in for a treat with Jonathan and Ian Pryor. Um, I've only read parts of Jonathan's book. Uh, I am looking forward to reading it. Can't wait to read it, in fact. Uh, And it's great for what I read so far. And I know Jonathan really well. Jonathan and I have traveled the country from Baton Rouge to Tucson to Salt Lake City and I've co-authored many papers with him. We're co-authoring a book right now. And I really admire his scholarship. Jonathan is really an eminent scholar, but what I really admire about Jonathan is his character. He's a man of character and that's after all what counts. He has undertaken this mission against critical race theory because of, of his character because it is a threat to our nation. Uh, We're caught up right now in a a, a real battle of ideas. We're living through a moment, and I think we should all be very aware of that. The left likes to deride this as the culture wars, as our former president, President Obama, did not not too long ago. That's how the left operates. They capture ground. They capture cultural ground. And then when conservatives say, well, not so fast, they say, oh, that's just a culture war. but actually, if you remember the context, I, Obama was stumping for Terry McAuliffe in Richmond when he said this. And if you remember, Terry McAuliffe is now back to his full-time job of being in money bags for leftist causes, and he's not the governor of Virginia. You see, conservatives are finally winning on cultural ground. Uh, this is something new to me. I'm a... 61-year-old conservative, which means I'm used to losing. Uh, but now, now we're winning. We're winning a, a cultural battle. Uh, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with the left. The left overplayed its hand. It went for a quick ambush victory, and, and it overstretched itself. Uh, and the American people saw what was happening. They looked at the, the, the racial and sexual indoctrination of their children. They looked at the forced struggle sessions in their places of work. They look at the, the radicalization of the military, and they said, "No, you know, not here." Uh, and the American people have strong motivation to act that way. They they love their work. Americans, foreign observers have long held, have long observed that we are, we see ourselves in our work. Americans love their children. They don't want them to become cannon fodder. In this, in, in this war of ideas, and American people love their country, and ultimately, this is about transforming America. Uh, the communist Eric Mann gave an interview not too long ago, well, actually, 2015, so six, years, six, seven years ago, in which he was very candid. I thought it was a very good interview. He said, look, whatever it is, whether it's sex or race or climate, the goal is destroying America, and, and all for us Marxists this is just a little division of labor Google that division of labor Eric Mann um, and, and that that is what it's about that's why Jonathan has decided to to wage this battle and write his books he's, on, he's a kind of an unsung hero in this crusade and hopefully after this book he will continue to be a hero but he will no longer be unsung thank you
2: Thank you, Mike, for those generous comments. That was very kind of you. And thank you for setting the stage for what we're going to talk about now in the next few minutes. It is my pleasure to invite uh, up here with me Ian Rowe, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of interbaccalaureate high schools in the Bronx. He is, uh, works with the Woodson Center, as well as the 1776 Unites Project, uh, distinguished writer, former CEO of Public Prep, Network of Charter Schools in Bronx and uh, Manhattan, and an author himself, whose book, Agency, we're going to talk about as well, coming out in May. So Ian, if you'll join me up here.
1: Thank you, Jonathan.
2: Congratulations on Splintered. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for joining Joining me for a conversation about what this means for parents today and what it means not only as a cultural movement, but what it means for our individual behaviors. For a moment, let me talk about where critical race theory really comes from and where its roots are. And the quotes, I think, that critical race theorists have written in their own documents about founding this worldview um, are not widely known, right? And so here's, here's one where uh, Angela Harris, who's a professor in California, she writes that Marx's dazzling analysis of capitalism is still riveting to contemporary theorists, right? So there is a close alignment an almost inseparability between the roots of critical race theory, critical legal theory, which came before that, and then critical theory, which of course is itself Marxist, right? It, it originated from the Marxist lens. Um, Derrick Bell, who's known as the godfather of critical race theory, uh, let, me, let me give a quote here, and we're going to talk about what this means and how it, how it shows up in the world around us. So he, he wrote, Even those whites who lack wealth and power are sustained in their sense of racial superiority and thus rendered more willing to accept their lesser share by an unspoken but no less certain property right in their whiteness, This right is recognized and upheld by courts and society, like all property rights, under a government created and sustained primarily for that purpose. So the perspective, when we say we see critical race theory in schools, the perspective is that these students are being taught that the American dream really isn't for them. It's only for some people. And there's nothing that we can do short of dismantling the system that would repair that. So let me ask. That was something that motivated me to not just talk about critical race theory in in my book, but also to talk about what is the American identity, where did it come from, and uh, how does critical race theory reshape or mischaracterize what that identity is. So tell me, from your perspective and in agency, how... Does that shape what you wrote there and your perspective
1: yeah so first of all uh, thank you jonathan for this opportunity and congratulations again as you mentioned for the last decade i was the ceo of public prep which is a network of uh, public charter schools in the heart of the south bronx lower east side of manhattan uh, nearly 2,000 kids almost uh, all low income almost all black and hispanic uh, and i'm now launching a new network of international baccalaureate high schools uh, also uh, in the south bronx and In my 10 plus years running schools in the heart of communities that um, one might characterize as ones that are oppressed, I never had ever a parent come to me to say, please, Mr. Rowe, include in the curriculum lessons that show that every system in America is defined by racism and that based on your skin color, every system is rigged against you. And it's one of the most debilitating messages that you could give, especially for young people who are in situations where they are facing challenges. So for me, that's one of the reasons I've written my book, um, Agency, which is all about empowering the rising generation to overcome the victimhood narrative so that they can forge their own pathway to power. You know, I see young people today caught between these two Dominant narratives. The first, I consider what I call blame the system, and the other, I call blame the victim. In the in the blame the system narrative, that is the narrative of uh, America as this forever oppressive nation. That based on your race, your gender, you are inherently marginalized, or you are a marginalizer. You know, you are inherently oppressed, or you are inherently an oppressor. You know, there's a white supremacist lurking on every street corner. Capitalism itself is evil. And these systems are so discriminatory, so overwhelming, that the only way you as an individual can move forward is if there's massive government intervention or massive societal transformation. Otherwise, you have no agency to overcome. That's blame the system. And then blame the victim, almost exactly the opposite, which is America is this land of opportunity. The streets are paved with gold. If you're not successful, then it must be your fault, right? There's some pathology that you have. You should have pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. The truth is both of these narratives, these half truths add up to a lie. And so I felt there needs to be a more compelling narrative that I put forth called agency. And I have a framework called family, religion, uh, education, entrepreneurship, which, which we can talk through but we need to empower uh, young people because the blame the system narrative is very much grounded in critical race theory where every um, disparity, every negative outcome is only seen through the prism of race. And what that often does, it sucks all the energy out of the room. So if topics like family structure or school choice or other factors that really drive Uh, positive outcomes for kids it reduces attention on those levers to this artificial and perverse ideology.
2: So all great points and so we are both uh, school board members as well of different school boards uh, as well as your work in starting schools so let's talk for a minute about what uh, evidence was uh, important to make clear in, um, in Splintered as well as in the work that you've done and the first is that Critical race theory is not taught in schools. That's what we hear all the time, and the media has been perpetrating this myth for a long, long time. Uh, And in my book, you will find the words critical race theory quoted in school district material. I mean, they're using it in uh, uh, the Hayward Unified School District across the Bay from San Francisco. Um, The California uh, New Ethnic Studies Program has a whole chapter on intersectionality. Uh, We've seen it in Virginia in the teacher training programs in Loudoun County, Virginia. I mean, you can find the words critical race theory in schools. And in case you're wondering if it's um, where it's coming from, you know, the nation's largest teachers union adopted a business item just a year ago saying that they would make sure that critical race theory stayed in schools. I think the National Council of Mayors adopted something similar. So, that's the first myth that was was worth debunking. Mm -hmm. The second is that critical race theory is just about teaching history, and that it's just about having a discussion about uh, race and America's past. If that was the case, then why was a critical race theorist, uh, Gloria Ladson-Billings, the keynote speaker for the National Council of the Teachers of Mathematics in 2019? Why did a National Association of Science Teachers have a critical race theorist Come and give a virtual presentation during COVID about affinity spaces in science teaching, and on and on. Right, my book talks about a movement called that has its own hashtag, actually called #DisruptTexts. Oh yes. And the idea is to get rid of texts such as To Kill a Mockingbird, right? To to uh, wipe those out of um, uh, wipe those out of school curriculum as well as Shakespeare uh, things that we would consider things that helped build the ideas on which we create truth, right? And we uh, talk about what is true. And it was funny. I uh, had a conversation with the Louisiana Superintendent of Education recently. And he actually he said it to me before I we were talking about my book. He said, yeah, the problem today is that we have to have this conversation again about what truth is. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're exactly right. I put it in the title of my book. That's why, right? It's because we have to remind people about what actually constitutes truth today. And then finally is this idea that we need critical race theory to teach compassion and tolerance. And I think the ideas that we find and research finds so uh, repeated so often through Paulo Freire, who is still widely used in colleges of education, not to mention Frantz Fanon, who is also claimed by critical race theorists, his idea of uh, decolonization, which is sort of the precursor to disrupt texts, right? Disrupt texts is this hashtag that, you know, talks about removing items from... Uh, school curriculum. Well, uh, decolonization is what critical race theorists call the effort to change what is taught based on the color of the skin of whoever the author was. So uh, it is not just about teaching uh, compassion and tolerance. And the more that you read the modern day, I think, um, incarnations of critical race theory through um, allyship starter packs that schools will find online uh, telling people about white women's tears and and what that means for black people and things like that it creates uh very much this confrontation that uh that you were just describing
1: yeah when uh it was helpful when i when i was a student uh in the college college of engineering at cornell many years ago um, one of our required classes was called uh theoretical and applied mechanics in the theory in the theoretical component of the class you you did all sorts of statistical modeling and spreadsheets to see you know what could happen should happen but then there was a component called applied where you actually put some of these ideas into practice and i think one of the things that uh critical race theorists say when they say well it's not being taught they're technically saying that critical race theory as an ideology using those words in first grade may not show up but the applied theory is showing up so that's when you see privilege walks where imagine this this room would we would ask everyone to line up horizontally with a teacher uh, at the front of the room who says if you're white take two steps forward if you're back if you're black take three or five steps backward and you go through these series of exercises where you literally have divided an entire room based on these characteristics with with all sorts of stereotypical assumptions which are grounded in Critical race theory practice. And so I, I think those, the, the, it, it's not being taught, it's a dodge. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are more than enough examples. And, you know, uh, the, in fact, in Evanston, Illinois, uh, the district there is being sued because they had several of these practices where they were dividing teachers by race in professional development. And there is a teacher in the lesson plan, literally in the lesson plan. Where they did this privilege walk, this um, privilege walk with kids, it said it was to ensure that the white kids had understood their internalized white supremacy. End quote. That was in the lesson plan. So these these ideas that it's not being taught, it's just a falsehood.
2: Mm. And I think you mentioned Evanston, the district that comes to mind to me is uh, Wellesley up in Massachusetts because they're a group who's uh, we I think both know well that Parents Defending Education um, was challenging the district's own um, affinity groups that were these mandatory separations that you were talking about and the district recently backed down and to me that's evidence that they know right? They know that these policies are not going to stand up to judicial scrutiny and that they do in fact violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that's one thing that's worth, I, that I talk about in the book, um, but also it's it's worth drawing out for people that um, Derek Bell, Ibram X. Kendi today, who says his work is based on critical race theory, they have criticized the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, they say that it is not, doesn't do what people say it does. It can never, End racist acts. I mean, that's a f- part of fallen humanity. Which I think what the civil rights movement did for us as a culture, our habitus, to uh, I think uh, steal back something that uh, Robin D'Angelo and White Fragility borrowed. Um, but our habitus, our cultural understanding, is that whenever something that is racist happens, we condemn it. As we should, right? We condemn it in the media. We condemn it as a people. We condemn it legally, right? That's it. it immediately comes uh, under the, the sort of criticism that it should. Um, so, uh,
1: no, no. I, go ahead, just, just, I mean, a lot of this ideology is this belief that, in order to end racism, we must practice racism. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, and, and Kendi says it over and over again. The other danger is not only the this again, every system is, is you know, saturated in racism, it's also the effort to reduce standards in the name of equity, which is another sort of practice related to critical race theory. So you see in states like Oregon, where the governor announces that in order to serve the uh, minority kids, they're no longer requiring that a student graduate, has to graduate from high school demonstrating proficiency in math and reading. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. How is that even on the table, or in San Diego, there's no homework <laughs> that has to be submitted on time, right? Hallelujah when kids <laughs> hear that, right? But I, as a school leader, I know how important it is to build the habits of daily homework, checks for understanding, but in the name of equity, to be an anti-racist school district, they were they eliminated the requirement for homework to be on time, for all 100,000 kids in the system, right? So it's not that these practices related to critical race theory just adversely impact low-income or kids of color. It impacts everyone by diminishing standards and diminishing expectations about what we know kids need to succeed.
2: Absolutely. The uh, poll that I've put up on this slide, the, the point in showing this poll is to show that Americans don't like the ideas that are built into critical race theory. I mean, over and over again, we see polling that Americans uh, don't want students taught, that slavery is what defines who we are as Americans. It is something that should be taught. It is something something that schools you know, should, should not avoid. Uh, but it's not something that they want to define them or to define their present. And so I think uh, to recognize in polls like this that Americans are very much aware um, that when they hear something, like we've, what we've described up here, that this doesn't sound right to them, right? That this description of critical race theory, it does not sound like what should de- define the communities in which they live. Um, so my last question for you. So we've talked about uh, some caricatures of, of um, America's sense of national identity, which is uh, something that I, that I bring up in my book Splintered. And, and you know, three of the big takeaways uh, that I felt were important were, um, you know, first, Uh, that uh, we should be getting to a place where, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s words of uh, judging people by their character is very important. But if you're not interested in that, how about his other sermon where he says we have to be a culture who loves their neighbor, right? And that is ultimately what we need to be striving towards, right? That is the sense of cultural habitus that we need to be building around, not these ideas that will be taking people apart. Um, I think another big takeaway is the scholarship, which is quite good, uh, excellent, in fact, from those, in fact, a a colleague of yours at 1776 Unites, uh, John Sibley Butler, who looks at the entrepreneurship uh, of uh, Americans who are black in the 19th century and in the 20th century, even in the midst of these obstacles, and what they were able to overcome is a um, clear, um, honorable, and and, uh, representative, I think, uh, situation that that represents and helps to define what America is all about, right? This overcoming of the obstacles and, and success in this, in despite you know despite them. Um, and then finally, um, the uh, something that that struck me in the writing of this book as I was reading a, a book from a long time ago by Gunnar Myrdal um, called *The American Dilemma* is uh, he makes a point in there that slavery, uh, the Jim Crow era, uh, any sorts of policies, redlining mm-hmm. that were uh, contrary, that were discriminatory and contrary to our founding ideals could not long coexist for America to remain what it was meant to be. And I think that that is borne out today. I think that is borne out in the habitus that I was describing to you before. Um, curiously enough, uh, Myrdal receives quite the bit of... Um, well a little bit anyway of criticism from uh, those such as Kendi in his book Kendi dismisses him and uh, i would argue that if you look closely at what Myrdal is saying he's saying that there is a, a american identity there is something that would not allow discrimination uh, to last it lasted far longer than it ever should have uh, but the very fact that our uh, political institutions and culture had a self-correcting mechanism that allowed for it to be defeated was so important so yeah
1: i mean that's what that's what's so frustrating when you do see uh, projects like the discredited uh, New York Times 1619 project, which literally wrote that the founding principles were quote, false when they were written. You know, the the phrase that I probably said, you know, 500 times when I was running for school board in my hometown was equality of opportunity, individual dignity, and our common humanity. And I think it really resonated. You know, s- sometimes saying the obvious things um, gives courage to others. Like, yeah, that's what we do believe in. That's who we are. You know, there's, a, there's a, this graphic that, if you're in the education world, is very widespread. It's an image of equality on the left-hand side and equity on the right-hand side, with the inherent message that equality is bad and equity is better. Because what it shows is three people of different height who are trying to see a baseball game. Mm-hmm. And in the equality frame, each one gets up the same box. And so therefore, these people of differing heights, and by the way, height is a euphemism for race, right? So that's your inherent advantage. If you're the tall guy, that's your white guy. And so you can see the uh, baseball game and the the short person can't. But in the equity chart, the boxes have been shifted so that the tall person no longer has a box and the short person has two boxes. And so now they're all equal in their ability um, to see Uh, the box, uh, see the the baseball game, and it's this simple image, but it says a tremendous amount because essentially it's the Marxist ideology is from each according to their ability, to each according to the need, and so who is this person that is, or who is this government who's deciding, well, you have the privilege, and so therefore I'm going to take away resources from you, and I go through, I actually have this chart in my book, and I show that if you're in a classroom, for example, if you've got 20 different learners, you have to differentiate instruction so that each child does get different kinds of support, but not for the purpose of achieving an equal outcome, but ensure that each child has access and an equal opportunity. And that's where the critical race theory, in my view, um, ideology just completely falls down. You can't achieve equal outcomes unless you're somehow got some overwhelming force, a um, neo-Marxist force, that's makesing, making these decisions. And that's the antithesis of what we want to build in our country.
2: It's nice to be the dictator if you're the. It's nice to have a dictator if you're the dictator, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so we have a few minutes left, and we'd love to take some questions from um, both those in the audience, and I know that our online viewers will have some as well. Uh, do we have uh, any questions that uh, from those of us uh, with us here? I have to see one in the back.
1: Don, Ian. At the very beginning, you mentioned that you never hear parents of the schools that you work at in South Bronx, uh, minority parents ask for these to be a part of the curriculum. Can you elaborate a little more on that disconnect between elites who champion these ideas and what parents actually want and why it seems to be just this huge disconnect? Right. Well, I hate to use the term elites because it's, it's affording a status which is unearned <laughs> um, in, my, in my opinion. But yeah, there is this disconnect. I mean, and it's not just in critical. I mean, consider things like defund the police that's it, I'm going to live in my very comfortable neighborhood that's quite safe. But over there, in that neighborhood, where there's a high crime rate, let's defund the police. It's, it's, it's nonsensical. Because the data is overwhelming that people who live in communities that face challenges, the very thing that they, when they hear, well, the founding principles are false when they were written, or let's defund the police, like, no, 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 no. I want to embrace, I want my kids to embrace the founding principles around family, faith, hard work, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, because they know that is the pathway from persecution to prosperity that millions of people of all races have followed in order to change their station in this country, even in the face of structural barriers. So it's a political agenda, it's a narrative, but we need efforts like splintered or agency to provide a compelling alternative to how more young people in particular have true agency in their own lives.
2: great response. Well, that's a great answer. Any others Marguerite? Yeah, so um, one is how do we get the mainstream media to permit a debate to occur between our two sides? You know they win by ignoring us, so how do we get the word out?
1: Well, that's why I actually in in my book agency I, I set up this dynamic of blame the system and blame the victim because in some ways again, the side, there, 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 there are half truths again that add up to a lie that, in both instances, in my view, deb- are, it's, it's a debilitating message to young people. I mean, Nicole Hannah Jones, who is the author of the New York Times 1619 Project, uh, wrote uh, uh, a, magazine, a, magazine, a magazine issue called uh, What We Are Owed. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was her treatise on why reparations is the only answer for the black community, a $13 trillion reparations program. And in it, she says, it doesn't matter what a black person does. Doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. None of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. Like, imagine if you were a 12-year-old black kid and you hear that. Like, how can you possibly think you can be successful in this country? Right? But you also don't want to send the message that you've got to do this on your own, that, that you've got to be that single person at 12 years old who can just leap over, you know, overcome any boundary. So that's why I set up these two uh, narratives that I think are competing with each other. In my view, agency, this idea of the, the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So agency is like a vector. You know, velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So the question is, if you do have free will, what are the institutions that are going to help you become morally discerning in your own personal choices? And that's why this framework, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, I put forth as those pillars of society, which if more young people were to embrace, they'd find the supports that can help them be successful to overcome the institutional barriers that the critical race theorists constantly say are insurmountable, while also knowing there are supports, there are institutions like the church, your own family, schools, and school choice that can help you be successful. So that's the nuance that I think we have to uh, advocate for. And part of the reason I run schools, we also have to build institutions that actually embody the principles that we're talking about, right? So my school you know it's going to be organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage justice wisdom and temperance and the idea of equality of opportunity individual dignity and common humanity and we want to show that you can actually build institutions that live up to these values
2: well i think just as well we need the media to recognize the facts and i think when you show the facts and i remember responding to that essay that you were talking about in um uh, with an article. And I, one of the things I brought up was the success sequence, which I know you've done uh, all sorts of research on. And But that this idea that you can keep yourself out of poverty by finishing high school, uh, getting a job, and uh, getting married before you have children. And when you showcase that there are behaviors and decisions that you can make that uh, are a part of You know, it requires the types of communities through schools and churches as well to support those young people. But when you show the evidence to the media, uh, they need to be able to confront these facts in order for us to have a discussion about, you know, then we can talk about what the real issue is.
1: Well, the irony is that in the case of Nicole Hannah-Jones and Millions of Americans, all the things that she said, doesn't matter if you do those things, we'd be successful. Well, guess what? In her own life, She's done all of those things <laughs> right? to lead a very prosperous life, <laughs> yeah. and good for her. Yeah. So yeah. Let's, not, let's not hide the ball and not let young people know that millions of people that look just like them, who are from similar situations, have become successful by embracing these founding principles.
2: Yeah, And, you know, that's why it's worth quoting from critical race theorists in sure. the work that we do, because they, the, the public needs to see what, these, what they are saying and what they are trying to defend. And once they do, once, they rec- once the public recognizes what critical race theory really is, all right, then we can have a debate about whether right. you want to go that way or not, because right. we have to talk about what we're actually doing. Right. I mean, the one thing I'll say in defense mm-hmm. of the 1619
1: Project is that it actually did reveal that there is an interest in our country of learning more about history broadly and African-American history in particular. And by the way, uh, you know, according to the National Assessment for Educational Progress back in 2019, only 15% of all kids have any <laughs> basic understanding of American history. It's just that where we disagree is that the history that, in our view, that they portray is very uh, cherry-picked and negative. We say, you know, warts and all. So I joined forces with Bob Woodson, and we created 1776 Unites to build a curriculum that has now been downloaded more than 30,000 times by teachers in all 50 states, in district schools, charter schools, uh, home schools, after schools, prison ministries, because, again, in our view, we're teaching a more expansive, full-truth story of the African American experience in the United States to tell specific stories but but are universal and timeless in their appeal because they stand for all of these curriculum units are around the principles of family, faith, hard work, uh, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, not running from America's past but sharing how the embrace of these principles were the vehicle through which we could improve.
2: And in Splintered, I call it a vacuum. I mean, there's a vacuum of uh, lack of knowledge about civics and history that yeah. tests show over and over again. And it's being filled now with these ideas from critical race theory that they're trying to disguise by not calling it critical race theory, for sure. So I think we have time for uh, one more question uh, before we close. Uh, Marguerite, is there another from online? Sure. Sure. Um, one person said, I'm starting to see commentary associate um, SEL, which I believe social emotional learning, with uh, CRT. What are your thoughts? So I would you know, I would just start by saying that uh, socio-emotional learning, just like math, science, history, has been co-opted by critical race theory. I think the evidence on SEL prior to this recent phase of three or four years where CRT is in the news all the time was just not conclusive that it was effective in the first place. Um, so it's arguable that we can have a discussion about whether it should be taught and how it should be best done. But I would argue that now it has been... Taken over by critical race theory, just as math, science, and history, uh, the same way. I mean, in my book, I talk about SEL in North Carolina and how there, at one time, anyway, uh, you know how these things get scrubbed from websites once it's discovered that critical race theory is there. Right. But uh, there is an SEL um, guidebook that had, you know, white privilege in it, discussions of, of critical race theory without calling it CRT. So it is just as with all these other subjects, it's been taken over now.
1: Yeah, I mean similar to anti-racist i mean who wouldn't want to be anti-racist until you actually see how it's defined like i'm against racism but i'm not anti-racist right so social emotional learning similar, of course particularly in the last two years i mean kids have uh, experienced and adults have experienced a great amount of negative experiences particularly related to school given covid and and remote learning and all of that But what it has now evolved into are, in my view, reduction of academic standards, uh, reduction of expectations around excellence, and a lot of more identity-based practice where now you can get the transgender issue and and other things, too, but things that are far away from the core elements of what I think SEL was originally
2: intended to support kids. Yeah, great point. Well, in the last few minutes remaining, I'm going to give a sneak peek. And one other project that Ian and I had the chance to work together on, as well as some who are here in the Heritage Building, but uh, forthcoming in in April is a book called The Critical Classroom, which has folks who uh, we both know who wrote chapters and contributed to it. Uh, But it talks about uh, the manifestation of critical race theory in K-12 schools today, and so that'll be available for uh, ordering online at uh, heritage.org coming soon. So check back to the Heritage website for more information about that book. So thank you to everyone who joined us online. Thank you to C-SPAN Books. And thanks for everyone who's here today. And it's been a pleasure having you. So thank you very much. Thank you.